Listener Production. Kate Langbrook is one of Australia's most well-known celebrities, loved by people across all ages and backgrounds. I have been fortunate enough to see a side of Kate behind the jokes and laughter that shines with warmth and humility. Kate says, I'm intuitively strong. I love the sound of truth. It makes you feel grounded and powerful. When you find something to laugh at in the truth, you are owning life. What follows is a conversation about growing up in a Jehovah's Witness family, the dark days of her son's battle with cancer and the beauty of the human spirit. I believe that people are resilient and strong and beautiful and kind because that's been my experience in life. Not exclusively, obviously, but that's what I believe. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Kate Langbrook is a comedian, radio and television presenter. She is Kate in the Husey and Kate duo, one of the most successful radio shows of all time. She is mum to Lewis, Sunday, Art and Yanni and currently resides in Bologna, Italy. Kate, what was life like growing up in the Langbrook family? You were you came from a Jehovah's Witness family. Correct. How was that? Well, I mean, you only know the life that you know, but... Um, it wasn't for me, <laughs> even though it was the life that I'd been given. It was um, it was quite intense also because we went and lived in New Guinea for a little while and because Jehovah's Witnesses had this thing about that you don't mix with the outside world yep. as, as, or you do that as little as possible. It was just me, my mum and dad and my older brother and so we sort of only had each other. Um was there a yearning to know more? Like, obviously, when you're a part of, you know, a religion like that, like you said, you don't know so much about what's going on in the outside world, but obviously you can see from just being out and yes. about. Was yes. there that yearning that Yes, I don't maybe want to be in this? I always had a hunger for the world outside and I didn't even know what that meant. And like just sometimes it would manifest itself in just strange ways. Like I remember in Brisbane when I was probably a young teenager driving into town with my parents one night to go to something, I don't know what, probably an assembly, Jehovah's Witness assembly, and seeing all the lights on and thinking, I want to be in one of those buildings like dancing. I want to, I think there's fun to be had, which there wasn't, well, there was within the witnesses, but it was like, um, you know, ice skating on a Sunday night on the other side of the river in, in Brisbane, the other side of town, um, because they had an ice skating rink or roller skating on our side of town until the elders got told that some of the young ones were coupling up and then there was no more roller skating. It was just a bit, um, like, I mean, you feel like you always have to preface this by going, some of them are great people and they're probably motivated by right instincts. But I found it for me to be very repressive to my spirit and I could never understand why 
Jehovah had given me the spirit he'd given me if he was going to be so disapproving of it. That's such a beautiful way to look at something like that. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Did you have fun at all in your childhood? We, yeah, we had fun, but it was it was always very highly qualified. Like Jehovah's Witnesses are, and I, I imagine they're less so now. Maybe they're not, but it was always one of those religions where everything that you were was first tempered by what God would say about it, but more repressively what the elders would say if they knew or what the other people in the congregation would say if they knew. And because we went to five meetings a week and my dad was an elder, um, there was that was always an overriding thing. Although that said, my um, mother in particular was not a representative elder's wife. She was always very outspoken. This will surprise you. Sarah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that my well, mother, well, I wonder where yeah, you got that from. Yeah, my mum was mouthy, you know, and that caused some ructions as well in, in whatever congregation we were in because that's just not the demeanour of an elder's wife. But And then also mum and dad were also a little bit contrary in that they were always they believed that we should go on to tertiary education, which was not necessarily, at that time too, was very frowned upon and it was seen as, um, the expression was, seeking man's knowledge rather than God's knowledge. Mm -hmm. But because my dad luckily had become a Jehovah's Witness after he'd finished teacher's college, um, he had a great sort of respect for tertiary education, just believed that was a pathway for us if we were interested in it. And because they weren't going to be sporty, because, you know, we never could play any sport um, and we couldn't, you know, take the weekends off witnessing to play sport, we were readers. So it was very likely that we're going to go into tertiary education. My mother was a fifth generation Jehovah's Witness who'd never even gone to school because she couldn't have the inoculations, (gasps) which at that time they believed contained blood products and the Jehovah's Witnesses no blood. So my mother, the smartest woman you've, ever met, or in your case, never met, who, <laughs> <laughs> who, who never went to school. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Did, how, did you go to a normal school or was there a special Jehovah's yes. Witness school? No, no. So no. how did you find if you're at a normal school, everyone would celebrate birthdays Correct. and stuff like that, and you're obviously, that's not part of, of the Jehovah's Witness um, religion. Correct. How did you find something like as simple as a birthday, not being able to celebrate the date that you were born? Well, once again, you um, it wasn't so much for yourself mm. because you it was never an option, but it's a very good way of dividing and isolating people from um, others that they might become friends with. Because if you look socially at what how people mix with each other, if you rule out birthdays, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, you've pretty well got every social event that you're excluded from. It's true, and especially when you're young. Yeah. The, the only parties you go to are birthday Birthdays. parties or the only parties that you don't go to are, are birthday parties. And sometimes they'd be like, that's why there were fun things like the witnesses would often, if there was a wedding, it would be what was called an open wedding so that even if you didn't know the people who were getting married, you could go from other uh, other congregations and like bring a plate Yeah, and then there'd be dancing, no contact dancing afterwards. But we lived for that because it was so, we were so um, probably starved of fun that 
everything seemed like fun that wasn't door knocking or uh, being in meetings. We were like, oh, my goodness, you know, are you going to the Kerwin's wedding or whatever yeah. it was. So in as a grown-up, that's been quite a handy attribute for me to have in life because I'm very easily entertained. Well, that's but true. I just love fun and I because I feel like I waited so much of my life to have fun, I've like I've never even had a hangover because technically I'm still in my adolescence. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Well, I suppose now you're able to recognise what is important because people find it hard to find fun in everyday life, but I think that comes out in your personality. It does seem to be, I think, a, um, I'm going to say a modern malaise because I don't know if it existed in previous generations or it wasn't acknowledged or wasn't as talked about, but it's definitely very much, I think, a, a, um, a product of our times is this creeping anxiety and sort of, like you said, n- that, you forget that things can just be fun. Well, that's it. And they don't also don't have to be Insta-worthy. They no. can just be fun, like daggy. It's such a beautiful Australian concept, that of dagginess. And like you said, you can find fun in the smallest things. It can be a conversation with a friend or, you know, walking the dog. Who knows, you know? Correct, correct. And tell me, so when was the moment that you decided, okay, this isn't for me and I'm going to leave? Because that was ah. huge for you. You know... I always I always knew that I was not a proper witness and in a true definition of irony I would pray to Jehovah to make me a better Jehovah's witness. Really? Yeah. And guess what? He didn't. He didn't. And I would cry in bed because I knew I didn't feel the way that I should and I was you know, I and also because I'm arsy, I was always like the elders would be talking, they were all men, you know, on the, at the Sunday uh, meetings and I'd be thinking, yeah, I don't agree. I, I don't, no, mm. I don't think you got that right, mate. I'm like, well, if you like me, you like me, but if I stop going to the Kingdom Hall, you suddenly won't even talk to me if you see me on the street. Like th- that's some... That's a mad shit right there, which I knew even as a child when I would hear that there would that someone had been disfellowshipped, which is, that's a big deal. Mm. When you get, you have to, if you come to the kingdom, well, you've got to sit up the back and no one's allowed to talk to you. And it's always for things like, or, you know, it's always for things like um, sex. It was always for sex. I mean, mm. young people for sex. Even though it was hard to leave that religion and and mainly it was hard because we knew that it meant losing our parents, me and my brother. I left first and then my older brother left. How old were you when you left? 18. And what, what, talk me through how did that come about? When did you go, okay, like I need to go now? Well, as soon as I got a job. Um, When I started at uni, I got a job on the student paper And then I got other little bits and bobs and then I got a job tutoring, not in first year, but um, later on. And I just went, that's it, I'm out. I'm I'm gone. And I remember telling my mother Mm. and and her saying, because she's, you know, so declamatory and she's, you know, so forceful. Um, I remember telling her and we were in the lounge room in our house in Brisbane and she said, why don't you try coming back to this family before you leave it? 
And it was so, and I was like, you know what? That's pretty well. That's, that's pretty well pushed me out the door. Yeah. That was just like, I, I think our business here is done. Were you close to your family before you left? I had moved away from them, I think, psychologically, because I knew that when I left the witnesses, it would mean losing them. And I think to ameliorate mm. the pain of that, you distance yourself from them. I certainly think my brother's done that. Yeah. Had done that and sort of has done it throughout his adult life with mum and dad. Even though they have now left and they left a few years after us, because you've embarked on that, you know, it's, I remember a friend of mine years ago when his dad was really sick and he knew that his dad was dying, asking him about that because that's a process that mm. eventually everyone will have to undergo. And I remember asking him about that and he said this really, to me it really resonated as just a thing in life, is that he said the tendency is to consider him dead before he's died mm. Because you, and that way you find yourself living through the grief a thousand times. But he said, you just have to shut that, hold that at bay. Yeah. And live in the moment with them. And while they're alive, your relationship is alive. It's so true. But so I think that I had sort of broken up with my parents before they ever knew that I even wanted to leave the witnesses because I knew that when I left the witnesses, they would break up with yeah. me. So I've always been the sort of person, like, if I get a slight whiff of, mm. you know, I'm out the door. I'm not the type of person to be waiting by the gate with your slippers in my mouth. Yeah. You know, that's probably not a person. That's probably more a dog. <laughs> I'm not I'm not that dog no. either, you know. And so you're 18 and you, you move away from that. What do mm. you do next? Uh, I moved into a house with um, a couple of girlfriends. Um from uni. Yeah. What were you studying? Uh, journalism. And uh, one of my good girlfriends then, her sister moved in. Actually, first, that, that was who I moved in first with her and her sister. She had an older sister who was in the army. Yeah. Or had just left the army and we moved in with her. And it was great. Yeah. What did you do? How was life great. not being part of the Jehovah's Witness? It was so, you know, the. The best thing and something that has stayed with me my whole life is that it's particularly a religious thing, but I guess people have it in other areas of their life as well, that you want to think that people who are other are not good people. So in the witnesses, it was always like, you will only ever find true friends mm. in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And a lot of people think that, that it's only people in my tribe who are. And there's lots of religions who mm. have that. Um, it was... I, it was such a joy to me how lovely people were. And I remember in my one of my classes, which was a film class, a film studies class, that when it was my birthday in August, um, they brought a cake. Oh, my God, it's your the, birthday. Yeah, because it was my birthday. Yeah, Which in the rest of the world is like a normal thing. Yes. It's going to make me cry now. I was like so self-conscious and so... I just couldn't believe it. Like it was just a Coles cake. I but know. to me it was like, it, it was just, I, I couldn't believe it. And it's 18 years with never having a birthday never. being celebrated before. Correct. And, and, and never going to um, anyone else's birthday. Yeah, it was amazing. And the kindness of people is amazing. And so I also believe people are resilient in mm. this world where people want to think that everyone's anxious and can't handle 
you know, you know, the side of a anything they don't agree with. Yeah. I, I believe that people are resilient and strong and beautiful and kind because that's been my experience in life. Not exclusively, obviously, yeah. but that's what I believe. Well, I, I also think what you give out, you receive. So, you know, you being such a beautiful and kind and happy person. Oh, but you att- Sarah, you I'm not. That. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm a bad person, but I'm sort of a bad, good person. <laughs> like, I just can't be bothered. I think because I had to spend so much of my life lying about who mm. I was, that as an adult, I had just have no interest in anything that's not truthful. And that yes. it even includes people telling, like comedians, I work with comedians all the time. And when I hear a comedian tell a story, I can tell if it's true or not. Like I can tell if they've made it up yeah. or they've embroidered it slightly. How, on, why on, do you think you have that ability? I think because I spent so long having to hide myself, I guess. I don't know. It's an intuition. Yes, it is an intuition and I'm intuitively quite strong. Mm. Um, Maybe it's just because I love... I love the sound of truth. It's like Husey and I on our radio show together will always take a story that's true. It doesn't have the jazziest, snappiest, neatest ending. It's not tied up with a bow because the truth really is, but it's got a resonance to it and the truth is nourishing and lies and whatever, Mm. no matter even if in the meantime they make you feel better or you laugh, Mm. there's a hollowness to it that for me... I mean, I... No, I, I agree you know? with you. And I think that's why, you know, Husey and you have lasted the test of time because there is that truth and, you know, people see that, that authenticity comes a long way. But also it's it's a confronting for some people mm. who some people are not comfortable on that ground. You know, they'd rather have a made-up story or a story off the internet or a odd spot or and and that can be fun as well yeah. it just for for me as a person I don't like it I just because I it makes me feel hollow whereas the truth makes you feel grounded yeah. and strong and when you find something to laugh at in the truth it means that you're actually you are owning life yeah that's so true it's hard to do and especially when the chips are down and times are tough, it's hard to do. But if you can do that, what can hurt you? Well, that's it. When you know you've told the truth, there's nothing around you that can hurt you. And if you're lying, then it means other people, as Princess Diana said, yeah. lies have power over you. Mm. And it's, it's so true. So, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Once you've told a lie, you're always worried that you're going to be found out. Of course. And then you have to try it's and live sick the feeling. Lie. Yes, yes, yes. One thing about you that I absolutely love is the beautiful, loving relationship you and Pete have. Oh, I mean, Peter. you've got four kids yes, yes. and it's hard. It's hard to have a cool. beautiful yes. marriage where the love can stay, especially with four kids. And how how do you do that? How do you stay so connected oh, with each other? Well, I think it's he's the right person. Mm. How'd you me. meet? We met on a trip when I was working in community radio to a on a trip to Vietnam on which I was the person that other people got to go on the trip with them. So there was like, it was an intrepid trip. It was fantastic. Yeah. And um, 
there were like 15 people on the trip and he came on the trip. But um, I was going back to the house that I lived in with my boyfriend and <laughs> he was going back to the house he lived in with his girlfriend, mm. soon to be his fiance. So it was just a meeting and a liking and then when we got home it got very – it was complicated and it, on paper, it looked entirely wrong because he's like nine years younger than me and he's, you know, he was at uni and at that stage I'd just started on television doing a show called The Panel. Mm. And it just seemed all wrong. Yeah. But we just liked each other. What we was just, it about him? He's just really a calm, beautiful person. He's very beautiful. And you know how sometimes people say – that they've met someone who makes them a better person. Yes. He he made me a better person and I already thought I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he was just, but we nearly broke up early on just because of the, he really struggled with the fact that I had a public profile, mm. which had, had only just sort of begun. Yes. And so when you try and do normal things, it would make it really hard. Like I remember one night we were at a pub and, all these people were trying to talk to me and he got really sulky and yeah. I said to him. Why do you think? Well, because he was he f- was neglected and he was jealous and mm. he was, you know, a, being a baby and I had to explain to him, I'm not, I can't, these people are being nice to yes. me. It's not something that I'm doing to you, so you have to help me here. So help me say a nice hello and move on from people. Mm. Don't leave me yeah. because then you just leave me with them. I don't even know these people, <laughs> but they know me, you yeah, know. That's of like course. A, yeah, so and it, it must was, be hard for partners of people that are known, uh, you know, because there is that jealousy. I mean, people throw themselves on yes, people that yes. have a profile and yes. that can be hard for Correct. the partner of the person. Less, less for women. Yeah. Generally. Yeah, because there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of single female comedians, <laughs> you know, who don't get hit on after shows. But yeah, I think it was just uh you know, it's a weird thing when you're with someone um who's famous on any yes. level. You know? So how did he get past that? We broke up. And and also he's got a tendency to be controlling, mm. which is in his DNA. Yeah. And like his father also has it, and his father married a woman who's my mother-in-law who's beautiful. They're both beautiful. Mm. Um, she's not a woman to be controlled either. So, But Peter just had it in him and would try to exert it. And I'm like, um, you know what? You don't want to be with me yeah. because that's just going to be a life of misery well, for you. I was going you. to say controlling Kate Lambrook. Yeah, and for me. It's yeah. just going to make us both miserable. But it was one of those situations where, and then we had a great conversation about it after we broke mm. up, like probably a year and a half later, and where he said, and I imagine a lot of controlling men have this feeling mm. Or controlling women. I think controlling women are maybe slightly different. I don't know. But where he said, it doesn't make me feel good. I don't know why I try to do it. It makes me feel terrible. And I said, well, (laughs) 
why don't you stop it? <laughs> because in my experience, if you're doing something and it's making you feel bad, the best thing to do is to stop it. And also he had to know how it was to be without me. Yes. To know that he wanted to be with me because it was taking on someone who's got a who's got an audience as well yeah. that to a certain extent you take on. And it means relinquishing, particularly with me and Hugh, relinquishing a certain degree of privacy because we talk, we don't really, we try not to subscribe to the notion that some people do of, oh, that my private life is off limits mm. or whatever. Why? 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 Your yeah. life's not any different than, why do you trade off the, the um, you, you'll trade off the public on one hand and enjoy the benefits that come from that yeah. from from the public and that profile you have, and then on the other hand, say, but you can't know about. You can only see my baby's feet. You know, like yeah. what is that? Well, we've just and, and so it meant he had to sort of slightly be on board with that. A lot of people in the limelight, a lot of celebrities, have you know, and of no fault of their own, are, are quite insecure. I mean, it's it's hard being a sometimes celebrity. Sometimes it is a fault of their own. And, and they do feed the <laughs> ego monster sometimes, <laughs> I think. And, you know, seeing in this day and age what people write about on social media or, you know, whatever, you, one thing about you is you stand your ground, but you are so confident within yourself. You have this innate way of not really caring what other people think of you and especially being a female because I know that can obviously be hard. How do you think you have that? I think that's probably from my mother. Mm. You know, the intelligent one who never went to school. Yeah. So I think it must have come from her. I mean, I care what people think if they're people who I care about what they think. Mm. Um, I think that the real hurt is only if it's truthful. Yes, that's true. That the truth mm. hurts. And so sometimes when you're reading criticisms of yourself, and I don't go out of my way to do that, mm. but sometimes people go out of their way to... Yeah, yeah, bring it in. <laughs> to make sure yeah, that you yeah. yeah, receive the message. Yeah. Um, if it's truthful, you sort of need it anyway. Mm because then it gives you something to go on with. And if it's not truthful, it doesn't really hurt you the same way. Have but, you had any moments where it's really hurt? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. When I started on the TV show, mm. the panel, and because I hadn't done the TV before, and that because that was with Working Dog, yeah. who at that stage had done the late show with Jane Oh, they're Kennedy. amazing, Working yeah, Dog. They're yeah. amazing. But they, Jane had been a part of their yes. fabric. And um, to a to a lesser extent, but also part of the fabric, Jude Lucy. So mm. when they announced they were doing this panel style talk show on TV, um, I think people were expecting that it would be Jane Kennedy. Well, of course they were, or Jude. Yeah. And when it was me, it was really who the fuck is that? And I I have to swear because that was basically the letters that I got, mm. and then there were letters to the Green Guide, and also I was really bad because I'd never done TV before mm. and I was a bit overwhelmed by that suddenly there I was with these people who were amazing and seemed to know a lot of stuff and if I didn't know stuff, I would say, what does that mean or what? And then people would go, do you know nothing? Letters and blah, blah. It was really, really horrible, horrible. And so how did you, you stayed on that show for a while, so how did yeah, you Yeah, we improve? ended up doing it for seven years. Yeah. 
I think I had a, an experience when um, after I did a, th- a few episodes, I'm not sure how many, they rested me mm. in a night, like not. Yeah, the, yeah. I, it was quite clear. Yeah. That, you know, this was, it had been, you know, an interesting few dates, mm. but it wasn't going to be a relationship. And um, when I came in that period and then they called back and said, come back and do another episode. And I remember saying to my manager at the time, I don't want to do it. No, tell them no. And she said, oh, you know, why don't you just go back and do do one and see. Yeah. I mean, then you don't have to do it again. And I was so filled with dread about having to go back. Not because I love seeing them, and I, but I was just so wrapped up in knots about myself that somehow that, that period of not doing it, I basically just went, oh, it's too exhausting to care about myself, mm. what people think about me. And somehow the sheer exhaustion meant that I just shrugged it off. Yeah. And I didn't care. That's amazing. And that was exactly what I had to do. Yeah. And from that, I think that first it back, I think it just worked because I was, I felt free. I felt liberated from my own, which people do mm. in life all the time to ourselves. The constraints we put on ourselves I just had to shrug them off because they were too repressive. And in 2009, your world changed forever. Your eldest son, Lewis, was yes. diagnosed with leukaemia. Yes, yes. How did you cope with that? It was oh, three and a half years. Oh, far out. Well, at that stage, Yanni, our little one, was five months old. Mm. And it was the end of the year, it was December, and we'd finished breakfast radio for the year. And um, uh, it was just, it's as you would imagine, and don't go too deep into the imagining of it because yeah, it's, yeah. it's not necessary. It's just terrible. It's terrible. Um, and... Then I think we, because we had that period over the holidays, we were in in hospital over the holidays and he started on, you know, suddenly you have to learn about chemo and lumbar punctures and, you know, protocols for treating T-cell ALL was the cancer that he had. Um, and he nearly died. Mm. He nearly died. And... When, and you want to die too. Mm. You want to die rather than have to look at it or think about it or go into the hospital and you just, you would rather, there were times when we were driving to the hospital when I would think to myself, oh my God, I hope a car hits us because I cannot endure this. Shocking. But you have to endure it because if you can't endure it, how can you possibly expect him to endure it? Mm. And if his if his mother cannot make him feel like it's going to be all right, who can? Well, that's it. You wrote you actually wrote this beautiful article that I've just got a bit out of because it is it's just absolutely beautiful. In two thousand and fifteen, I think you wrote it for a Mother's Day. Oh yes, yes, yes. Which is the first time I think I'd really sort of publicly talked yes. about it when I was. Yeah. 
One of the longest, hardest days of my life was the day my boy, my firstborn, my heart song, was wheeled into surgery to have a biopsy performed on his optic nerve. He was being treated for leukaemia and that was already beyond awful. But the week before, he had gone blind in one eye, a fresh terror. Our oncology team at the Children's Hospital feared he had relapsed, that we were losing. It was a dreadful day, truly dreadful, full of dread. It was the day I wished I was never a mother because I could not bear it. Of course I could not bear it, but I did, because I could not panic and I could not run, because I was his mother, and because he was frightened, I could not be. So each each fear-filled laden step I tried to take evenly, each stroke of his little bald head was with my hand, calm and reassuring. Every word I spoke I uttered quietly and lightly to make sure I would not betray to my child the quivering fear inside me. Oh, How, how did you find the strength, Kate? Oh, you know, there'd be people listening to this, thank you, <laughs> who are right in the middle of that now. And I guess that's why I said to you earlier that people are resilient. Mm-hmm. It's also probably easy for me to say that because, praise be, we had a good outcome with Lewis. Yeah. But at the time when it just seemed like, we were done, that we were done. I, I, you have your, my amazing mother-in-law, my parents, you know, his, my husband's extended family. There's strength from that, but you also had to go beyond that. And for me, it was very interesting that I guess, given that you started the conversation about religion. Yeah. This funny thing happens or happened to me when you leave a religion is that I thought I could no longer believe in mm. a religion because I didn't want to be Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. But when Lewis was sick like that, mm. I had to find a faith beyond from where I don't know because I didn't have one to draw on except that it was inside me because I'm alive and I'm a person and I think that's an innate part of all of us that we sometimes try and shut Mm. out because it's not cool or it's not whatever or you think it has to come with a religion or a label. Mm. I had to go find that in me to continue. And it was like, um, and everyone came from all their faiths friends of ours, friends of mum and dad's from their their church they go to now, which is like a Dutch church, brought back a bottle of myrrh that they'd bought in Jerusalem. And oh, wow. Catholic friends of ours, my girlfriend's husband went on a 30-day fast and went to see these nuns and they said, like everyone mm. was saying prayers for us, Jewish so friends of ours and our you know, Muslim babysitter and everyone was Mm. saying prayers for Lewis Lewis. And there was something about the comfort of that and the humanness of that that I think gave us the strength to keep going. And like Winston Churchill said, if you ever find yourself going through hell, keep going. (laughs) <laughs> and I would say to my mother-in-law, Marie, well, we can't stay here because here is terrible. Mm. We just have to keep going. We just have to keep going. 
And we had a miracle. We had a miracle. And so I say to friends or, you know, through the Children's Cancer Foundation, which I'm involved Mm -hmm. with now, which is just such a mighty organisation, the strength that you will find has to come from some place internal, not external. How has that changed you as a person and a mum? Wow. Well, it's made... um, it's it's made me so happy to see my children alive. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, but also it doesn't stop me from getting angry on Saturday morning when, when I've made pancakes. <laughs> like it's just you think that when something like that happens in life, there's going to be a significant um Shift. Shift, yeah. yeah. And it's not a, it's not really that significant because also the whole transition wasn't, it wasn't like now he's cured. Yes. First he got one clear result and then when we got the results of the, the eye yeah. biopsy, they didn't find any leukemic cells and our oncologist didn't believe it. It was just so we, we, we spent a long time waiting for the other shoe to drop that we were, we would still end up, you know, who knows where. So it was a gradual uh, getting your strength back. Yes. So we sort of went through emotionally the same process Lewis was going through physically as he was getting his strength back. We were getting our emotional yeah. strength back. And then I got a little bit of sassiness <laughs> with the world again. But for a while there, I, I had... I You're was terrified. Yeah, just belly slit open and just waiting for the cruel vultures of the world to come pick out your entrails because you've just got nothing to protect yourself from the vulnerability of something happening to your child. Do you think that you raise your kids differently now? Yes, yes, actually, yes. I think... You know, is it like, who cares about organic? They're alive. No, well, (laughs) interesting you say that. We were more like, who cares about a broken wrist? It's not cancer. Yeah, so we are a little yes. bit like that. Like we take risks and literally this is so terrible. On one day, both of our, our eldest and our youngest were in the children's hospital at the same time, both having procedures. Lewis having a lumbar puncture for mm-hmm. his ongoing and Gianni, our little one, in emergency because he had a broken wrist that he'd had for three days and we didn't know because oh, no. we just thought... At that point, you know, because of, of cancer, if it's not cancer or everything else, yeah. and we're like, he seems a bit, do you see when he jumped off the step, he did something funny to yeah. us. And we were like, oh, he's, no, he seems fine. And then one day, um, Marie, my mother-in-law, picked him up to swing him round, you know, by his wrist, and he let out this terrible scream. And we were like, oh, we better take him to the hospital. And he had a broken wrist. Wow. Oh, you know, we've had split eyes and chipped teeth and so we are probably a little bit more cavalier about that than we should be. Not that we, we're, no, we're yeah, not like, yeah. yay. <laughs> but it puts that into, and risk has got a like, we just let Lewis go um, with a mate of his to the Balkans yes. on his own. And at the start of the year, you and Pete and the family moved to Italy. Yes. Why did you decide to do that? We don't even know. We don't even know how it... We went to Italy for the first time four years ago when Lewis was allowed to travel and um, 
we fell in love with it. We were just like, this is, and they're so beautiful to little kids and they just, they eat nice food and they, they're just great people, you know, and it's a great country. I don't know why we started talking about it and then, like I said, because Peter's the glacier, mm. you don't have really a casual conversation with Peter Allen Lewis. If you say you want something to happen, he will make it happen. It's amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. And then I had to have the conversation with Husey. That was probably the hardest because um, it. what I, obviously that would yes. affect him. And then some, somehow we were, Doing it. How's it been? Oh, my God. So brilliant. So brilliant and difficult and challenging and magnificent and stretching and exhausting and rewarding and refreshing. Yeah. What are you most grateful for? Obviously that. All my children are alive, that Peter's parents and my parents are alive, that they're, my parents are in Italy now and visiting and Peter's parents are coming over. Um, you know, most, I'm probably most grateful, which sort of informs everything that's happened subsequently, that my parents migrated to Australia. Mm. I'm I'm so lucky that they came here. My dad's Dutch and I told you my mum's Jamaican-American <clears throat> because everything that I have came from Australia, you know, and that this, you know, including Lewis's health care, you know, that in America if a, a, a child gets, a six-year-old gets leukaemia, their parents might not be able to afford the treatment. Like just everything. I think that's probably the thing I'm most grateful for. Do you pray? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Have you always? I had a gap. (laughs) (laughs) I had, you know, I had a gap decade. But yes, I do. Yeah. What's Mm -hmm. a life of greatness to you? Life itself. I think that everyone's given the gift of life, but not everybody respects the gift of life as it's carried inside your physical form and that's why some people squander it. But everybody has the choice to honour themselves and if you peel away the parts that aren't good for you, like Peter Lewis and the controllingness, stop the stuff that's not good for you and do the stuff that's good for you That is the greatest. Kate Lambrook, you are genuinely one of the world's most shining stars. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others.
A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.